The reading this evening is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, and can be found on page 1146 of the Bibles in front of you. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now there's a great benefit to belonging to a church, and that is that you don't have to go through life uh, solo. We have uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, which can, in fact, be closer relationships than blood brothers and sisters. And what's more, with sadly fractured families so prevalent, if we've missed out on a father or a mother or an older sibling, then there are other role models who are like a father and like a mother and like older brothers and sisters who in some way go to compensate. No one gives us any training for being parents, for example. But we can observe those who are a little older than us and further down life's pathway and register lessons from them that we might be able to apply should in the future circumstances arise. Metaphors are also um, give us an insight into how God thinks about his church. Now, a metaphor... They work like this, by referring to one thing by mentioning another. And we've seen over the previous four weeks different metaphors of the church at work. There is the body, illustrating that the church is a unity in which every member has a part to play. We've also looked at the agricultural metaphor, the vine and the fig tree, for example, illustrating how the church is something that is vitally connected and steadily growing. And we've also seen the ancestral metaphor, the family of God and an intergenerational family that goes back centuries as well as forward in time. And this evening we take a look at the architectural metaphor, which takes many forms in the New Testament But this particular passage we have before us focuses on just two, the building's foundations 
and a temple with a presence. There are others. For example, if you were doing naval architecture, um, you could include uh, the ark as a metaphor. The ark was the rescue vehicle at the time of the flood, which was a time of God's judgment. And the church is, if you like, the rescue vehicle for any future judgment. Now in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, speaking of his fellow believers as partners with God, Paul moves from an agricultural metaphor, you are God's field, he says, to this architectural metaphor, you are God's building. So have the passage and the outline before you. So a building, and then we'll look briefly at the end at the temple. So the building requires a uh, right foundation, the foundation of the apostles, who ultimately their teaching is founded on the teaching of Christ. So back in the autumn of 1994, when work began on this auditorium here, that it was vital to get the foundations right. So we managed the project, which in those days cost £1.1 million, which was raised by the congregation over five years. And we did so, we did manage it ourselves because it would save a significant amount of money. And we got quotes from different companies to do the foundations for this and for the car park. And they ranged, I think, from memory, from something like 440,000 to 130,000. So, surprise, surprise, no uh, surprise for guessing that we opted for the cheapest quote and saved £310,000. But it was vital, of course that the foundations were sound, or we would be risking building all the superstructure on something which would ultimately collapse at vast negative expense to us. Fortunately, our prayerfully calculated risk has paid off. The foundations that are referred to here are those of the Apostle Paul's. He, is, he and his writings and teaching were the foundation of this particular church in the Greek city of Corinth. In verse 10 we read, By the grace uh, God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. As we saw last week, grace is the Greek word charis, and the gift of builder is one of Paul's grace gifts, one of his charismata. Actually, the Greek word translated expert builder is architectron, meaning, just as it does today, the one who conceives and supervises the building project. A bit of background. Paul arrived in Corinth in 50 AD after he'd established a church in Athens and he confesses from being far from confident at the beginning of his letter, about embarking upon this mission of establishing a Christian church in this Greek city. He lodged with a Jewish couple called Aquila and Priscilla, who had converted to Christianity in Rome, but had had to flee Rome the year before, 49 AD, due to an outbreak of persecution between uh, the Christians and the Jews and the Christians and the Romans. 
And like Paul, they were in the leather trade. And the first church at Corinth met in their home. As a rabbi, Paul had uh, the status and access to be able to teach in the local synagogue where Jews, converts from Ju- to Judaism and God-fearing Gentiles who uh, found Greek thought vacuous and uh, were attracted to monotheism and morality. And his, pass- his message was that their long-expected Messiah had come Maybe not quite what they were imagining, but nonetheless, one who did tick all the boxes that the prophets had uh, predicted he would back in the Old Testament. And he got a response, mostly, it has to be said, from those with a Gentile background. But there were some Jews who thought, yeah, the Messiah has come. And he concentrated on the Jews first, but when most of them turned against him, he went and concentrated on teaching the Gentiles. Now, I'm not making this up. You can read it all in Acts 18, for example. But when kicked out of the synagogue, he moved next door to a bigger house than Priscilla and Aquila's, the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile convert. And then Crispus, who was the synagogue ruler, and his family also joined Paul, as it says when they believed in the Lord. And it says back in Acts 18, and many others believed and were baptised. Paul in uh, Acts 18 verse 9 had been reassured in the face of this Jewish opposition that he was not to be afraid, that he was to keep on speaking, he was not to be silent, the Lord was with him and It says the Lord had many people in that place who were his. So he knows who they are and he's got Paul who doesn't yet. So if Paul starts teaching about the one true God and how he has actually appeared on earth in the person of Jesus, then those people who in a sense he's got lined up, by their own free volition, they go, yeah, that's it. And they embrace the faith too. Well, Paul, we're told, often in Acts, that he reasoned with them. Them being those who were arguing against the Christian worldview. Reason will ultimately win out. Solzhenitsyn saw that before it happened in the Soviet Union. And although it can sometimes take centuries for reason to triumph, you think of of the abolition of the slave trade, for example. Um, That took 60, 70, 80 years, probably. And reason triumphed. Just because people are of a different colour doesn't mean that they're not equally human beings. And you shouldn't take away the freedom of human beings. And you certainly shouldn't treat anybody the way in which they were treated. And that may well happen in other things, which at the moment may well be wrong, but ultimately reason will triumph. So, uh, Paul stayed 18 months in Corinth and established a sizable Christian community. When the Jews took out a legal case against him, the proconsul, 
threw the case out because under Roman law, there was no case to answer. It was quite all right for him to go about teaching and reasoning and talking about, from their perspective, his religion. Quite all right. Free, rational debate is a very precious thing and should be defended. After 18 months, Paul moved on and other Christian teachers like Apollos took over um, and um, built upon Paul's foundation, a foundation that he's keen to assert is a foundation based on the life and teaching and work of Jesus Christ, verse 11. So the church in Corinth, Paul stresses, has its ultimate foundation on Christ. And the picture here is that we who form a church are like a pile of rocks and we need to be chiselled into shape. The cornerstone of the building has to be especially um, straight, 90 degree angles on it because every other line in the building is going to come off that cornerstone and that cornerstone is of course Christ. In the metaphor, Jesus is the foundation. He is able, through his death for our sins, to bring dispersed people together and to align them with him through repentance and faith and the transforming power of his word and spirit. But how do we know? Well, the answer is because the Old Testament prophets predicted it and the New Testament apostles recorded the events and their explanation and their authority and veracity were attested by their extraordinary ability to do miracles. And some other details you can attest by reading um, Greek literature and Roman literature at the time, and you'll find the names of proconsuls and their particular titles actually match up, even though they change them every few years. But the Acts of the Apostles get the right term at the right time with the right person, which is impressive. Well, then we have the church's teachers build upon this apostolic foundation and they're told to do so carefully. Now, there are two ways, uh, wrong ways, of building upon the apostolic foundation. One is you can tamper with them and the other one is you can use inferior materials. They're referred to in 11 and 12. So tampering with the foundations. In the Corinthian church, there were attempts to tamper with the foundations. So, for example, the legalistic element. There were Jews who couldn't believe how, um, how God's offer of forgiveness and relationship with us is free. You know, gratis and for nothing. It's by grace. It is a gift. We have to recognise who's giving it. And except we need it, and we take it. But those who had a Jewish background, which is of quite a legalistic background, they thought they had to add to what Christ had done on the cross. So they thought they had to carry on keeping all those ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, which were really just to illustrate what Christ would actually come to do in reality. They also tampered with the foundations by challenging the apostles' teaching. 
See, people like the apostles, they got their foundation in Christ face to face, one to one. And no one else subsequently has direct contact with Christ. But they had direct contact and authorization from him. Now his opponents attacked them. They, he, they did attacks on the person of Paul rather than debating the message. You see, rather than submit their thinking to the apostles, Paul thinks, Paul's thinking, which was based on Jesus' thinking. Some, subsequent, um, some subsequently supposed Christian leaders used Christian vocabulary, but they... But this redefined vocabulary was influenced by their pagan backgrounds. You'll see in the letter that um, they still, many of them, from this Gentile background, retained their pagan habits. For example, 1 Corinthians 6, they carried on using prostitutes. They carried on in their clubs, uh, chapter 8. They carried on with their particular parties, chapter 10, and with it their pagan worldview, which was strongly dualist. Now what's dualist? Well, we know that we have a physical and a spiritual dimension to ourselves. Now in Hebrew thought, the thought of the Jews, those two dimensions are kept strongly together. Most Jews, for example, believed in the resurrection of the body. They could not conceive of existence without some tangible form. The Greeks, however, tended to separate the spiritual from the physical. And they, for example, tended to downplay the physical. Some even saw the physical as evil and the spiritual as good, which was far too simplistic, because after all, both can be evil and good. So if you uh, see the body as evil, you might be tempted into self-flagellation, as some Christians throughout history have done. You beat yourself. Or if you're in a little group, you beat each other. If you commit a particular sin, you're trying not to do so. But history tells us that if you over-concentrate on particular sin, you'll end up committing it far more often. And that's uh, one corrupt direction, rigorism. They even, in chapter 7 of Paul's first letter, wondered whether it was right for a Christian to be married. Now the other wrong direction is to think that uh, what one does in the body doesn't matter. It's only how you live spiritually they, uh, they thought mattered. And so what you did with your body was, as far as God was concerned, to his spirit, was unimportant. So alongside with, on the one hand, this very strict, rigorous tendency, went this unbelievably libertarian one, where, for example, in chapter 5, incest could be countenanced. You see, it also had doctrinal implications as well. If you stress the so-called spiritual more than the material, what you get is this. Christianity, which although it's a historical-based religion where God works and appears in this physical world, 
What happens if we don't value, um, if we overvalue the spiritual and stress extra historical revelation? We will become much more subjective. Truth will become fuzzier and words will change their meaning and we will end up with a different faith from the apostolic ones. So they, in their different ways, were bringing their diverse pre-Christian baggage into play on what the apostle had taught them. It's quite possible to create a community on a different foundation to that of the apostles. But of course that community would not be the church. So one way was tampering with the foundations. The other was by building with inferior materials, verse 12, the rest of the superstructure for the building. Rather than using gold, silver and precious stones, precious stones was most likely marble here, Now, they were the ingredients that went to make Solomon's spectacular temple around 900 BC. That's what temples should be built of. Well, instead of those, they're said to be using, metaphorically, wood, hay and straw. Now, in our day, we'd say that such shoddy workmanship would not pass inspection by building control. I don't know whether you know that uh, um, the council has a department which is called building control. So when buildings are under construction, at periodic times in that uh, construction, the site gets visited by a building control inspector to make sure the thing is being built properly and will be safe and will last. Well, the church, or church in inverted commas, of these uh, false teachers who are building with shoddier material, that that will face its assessment day. The day of judgment is pictured here as fire, as the means of testing each of these teachers' work. So we are to picture a house a house that has a fire spreading through the building, and all that's made of wood and hay and straw is easily burnt up. But the marble, the gold and the silver will survive a superficial fire like that. Now you may have heard that Thomas Cook, the uh, world's oldest travel agent, went bust this week. And you probably know that if a company does well, the directors pay themselves a bonus. Well, I learnt this week that uh, in their contracts, they could, if the company does badly, receive not a bonus, but its opposite, a malus, terms derived from good and bad in Latin. So if they had a bad performance, they lose some of their pay package. Well, of course, if a company goes into liquidation, there is no company. So there's no pay and there's no way of getting the payback. So that's where the government has some outfit who deals with insolvency and they can claw back what uh, they deem the directors have overpaid themselves. Now, in this case here, the good builder 
gets salvation and a reward on top. The poor builder gets his salvation but no reward. To use uh, the picture of the burning house, he escapes the fire but he probably gets singed in the process. And finally, the metaphor is a switch from a building to a temple, verses 16 and 17. The opening line is, don't you know, which is a mild rebuke because the apostle thinks they should know. And they should know that they are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you, he says. Now in the Old Testament, where's the presence of God? The presence of God was in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the temple in Jerusalem. And human contact was limited to one person, the high priest, once a year. It was all illustrative. Now, there are two words in the original that are used of the temple. One which includes, which means it includes all the temple precincts where anybody and everybody can go. And another one which is used only of that central little sanctuary itself. And it's the latter that is used in this particular passage. It is the place symbolically where the very presence of God was thought to be in Old Testament times. Now the expression, the Spirit of God, is not common in the New Testament. But here it emphasises the connection between the Spirit and God the Father. It underscores, if you like, the deity of the Spirit because what Paul is emphasising is that uh, the Spirit, God, dwells within the church, which is his temple now. Sometimes it is applied to individual Christians, as it is in 1 Corinthians 6, but here the thought is of the whole church community of believers as being the shrine, the place where God dwells. We know that because in verse 16, God's temple is singular and the you is plural. God lives in and among the people of God, his church. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Now, the word destroy can have a range of meanings, from corrupt on the one hand to obliteration on the other. And here it would be better and more accurate to translate the first occurrence of destroy as corrupt and the second occurrence of destroy as obliterate. So the church, God's temple, is corrupted by false teachers, and God will obliterate them. Now we're not to read into such terms anything about whether hell is annihilation or everlasting punishment. Just that apostolic teaching survives, as do apostolic churches. Whereas false teaching and churches with a false prospectus will not survive. So... What do we take away from this? Well, two things. One is to ensure that our church conforms to the teaching of the apostles. And the second is this. 
If, as we've learned, our church is where the presence of God resides, we should make sure that we are fit for his presence and that he doesn't have to escape to the attic. So ours is a historically-based faith, an evidence-based faith, we could say. God in Christ lived, taught, worked in history. The apostles knew him one-to-one. He taught them. He ensured they recorded it. And we have a record of that which forms the New Testament. And that is the foundation. It's not just intellectual. It's also volitional because there's usually quite a battle of the will that takes place before we embrace that intellectual truth. And it's emotional. Outside of the apostolic faith, we are not at ease. Inside it, We have peace and a positivity and purpose. We must not separate the mind, the will and the heart. We must not, as the Corinthians did, separate the material from the spiritual, with the material being downplayed. That is a route that can lead to asceticism, where we beat the body, or libertarianism, where anything goes, and as moral anarchy. It also means that instead of our Christian faith or worldview resting on solid historical foundations, we can drift off into the subjective. Vocabulary can remain the same, but those words are redefined. So we think we're on safe ground, but think more carefully and we realise things have changed. If we stick to the apostolic faith, live by it, our churches will fittingly enjoy the presence of God among us. May it be so. Amen.